Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. I'm coming to you from the back house with my beloved friend, Peter Rollins. It is so good to be back. He I is... love being back. <laughs> <laughs> Pete and I have been covering some miles together. Yeah. We have some miles we've covered and some miles to go on this tour we've been doing together. I've missed you. It's been a week since I've seen you. It's been a week you. since we've been together nonstop. We've been hanging around a lot. All day, every day. Yeah. Um, so what I want to do, in this episode, we're going to talk about parables, uh, past couple episodes, I've done some parables, and you've written your own parables. Yeah. How many parables have you written? I've so I, I brought a book out that had thirty three, <laughs> which uh, but I've got, I've written more than that. But that was my initial foray. Okay, so folks, I want to take Pete through how he writes a parable, and then I think there's something about the way that we grow, the way that we wake up, the way that we mature, that the way that we learn. The parable is like a, I feel like it's having a resurgence. Mm -hmm. It does something different. For many people, education was get information and then act on it. And the parable does something else, which I want to explore with you. I want to explore with you. And then will you do some of your parables for us? Oh, yeah, I'll tell you Okay, great. But before that, we need to talk about tour. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because, my friends, uh, we next go to Texas. Yep. We're going to do two nights in Austin. Which was one night originally, and then they put a second one on. And then Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. Then we do like San Francisco, Sacramento. Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. There's a Chicago, Milwaukee, Minnesota in there. There's a Boston, Philly. Anyway, we're going to a bunch of places in the next couple of months. All that info info is at my website. Um, Is the tour what you thought it would be? Oh, everything. It's wonderful. I I don't know if I thought anything. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to expect. So it was kind of like jumping into the abyss. And uh, and, and what I love is especially the first gig where, you know, it's quiet. You're in this big room. You're just sitting around in the back. And then you start hearing the noise of people coming in and the the vibe in the room changes and the temperature in the room changes. Uh, So that's that was a very exciting going, not knowing what to expect. Whenever a room goes from zero to 200, 300, 400, you know. Yeah. Oh, man, it's been so much fun. Yeah. Oh, I also should say to all UK friends, um, the wonderful folks at Greenbelt Festival have sorted a UK-Ireland tour. Pete's not going to be going on that leg yep. due to other things. Because this man, ladies and gentlemen, this man is up to lots of things. <laughs> Um, so Pete won't be coming on the UK Ireland, but those dates just went up, and um, I absolutely adore the folks at Greenbelt. When I told them I wanted to do a tour over there, so all of you England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales friends, I'm coming your way. You can go directly to the Greenbelt website, or you can go to my site, and it'll link you to Greenbelt. But um, yeah, UK tour first half of July. I'm coming your way with the Holy Shift tour, and. Um, so that's the big, that's a, I love announcing new tour dates. It, yeah. makes, it brings me so much satisfaction. Oh, and that's a big thing. Yeah, a lot of people are saying, oh, you're not coming here, you're not coming here. But actually, there's there's more to be announced in the coming <laughs> months, I think. There may be some more. Who knows? Um, and, uh, well, is Kristen Bell coming in? Hi, Kristen hello, Bell. Hello, hello. How are you? Oh, my word. This party, ladies and gentlemen, just keeps building. Okay, so we've announced UK dates. We've... Talked about how much fun we're having, how we can't we'll get you and me in Texas. You in Texas will be fun to see. Yeah, I love Texas. <laughs> I love Houston, especially. One of my favorite really? places in the world. There's a the um, one of your favorite places in the world is Houston. Yeah, well, did well, not expect to hear that. There's this build, the Rothko Chapel is in Houston. Oh, yeah, I've heard about it. So it's that's one of my favorite places in the world is the Rothko Chapel. So someone just sent yeah. us a link me a link to it to see i should see it when we're there oh, yeah we should like if, if there's any time we should definitely see it it's okay. beautiful that's stunning done sorted now let's get to the business at hand yes parables enough fun down to work <laughs> <laughs> okay will you start will you give us will you give me a couple parables of your own oh parables okay start there think. yeah Okay, I'll tell you the very first parable I ever wrote. Excellent. Um, I don't think it's necessarily brilliant or anything, but I I remember walking down the street and seeing this uh, car, and in the back of the car it said, uh, if Christianity were illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So I went home that night, and I thought about it, and I went to sleep, and the next morning I I got, got up and got my computer out, and I imagined a world where this is true, that Christianity is illegal. And this guy gets arrested, this pastor, and he's brought before the court. 
And he's, uh, he's very scared, he's very worried. He knows that this could be a life sentence. In fact, it could even be death. And he's eventually brought before the judge. And the prosecution have this big defense against him. They have all of these books from his library, all these religious texts. Uh, they bring out some religious music. They have recordings of his preaching. Uh, they have videos seeing him in, in church. And then to close the case, they bring out his Bible. And this is a well-worn leather book with underlinings throughout and notes. So the evidence is presented. And this guy, he, he tries to keep his cool. He feels like he's going to cry out any moment and say, it's not true, it's all lies, I renounce Jesus. But he doesn't. He's a strong guy and he stays quiet. And when the judge asks, has he got anything to say? The man says nothing. So he's let out and he's outside the court for about you know 30 minutes and then he's brought back in. He sits down and the judge stands and says, of the charges that have been brought against this man, I find the accused not guilty. And suddenly all of the, the fear and the trepidation turns into confusion and even anger. And despite himself, he says, well, what do you mean I'm innocent? And the judge says, I don't see any evidence of, of faith or Christianity here. And he says, well, what about all the books? What about all the music? What about the times I preached in church? The times I wept with people and prayed with people? The times that I have stayed up all night pouring over the Bible? And the judge just looks confused and says, you know, I don't, I don't see anything that warrants uh, a, a charge. He says, you, you, sh you know, your, your sermons show that you're a, a preacher and a poet and that your journals show that you like to write and maybe you fooled other people and maybe even you fooled yourself. But until you live as Christ lived, until you put your body to the flames, until you give yourself in love to your neighbor, I don't see any reason to charge you. And the man leaves. So there you go. That's the first parable I ever wrote. <laughs> how, old are, how old were you? That was maybe 25 years ago. Because that, feel, that feels like really reflective of an earlier period in your life. Yeah, it is. There is a reflection of something. that, Like the beginnings of my own journey is in that parable. How is, it, how is it present in that? Well, it was the move from the idea of Christianity as a, as a belief system, as a way of thinking, as, a, as an idea of an inner life to the idea of uh, Christianity is material, it's embodied in how you live. So that faith is, is not about necessarily kind of having a certain view of the world, but rather existing in a certain way within the world. Mm -hmm. So all of that was kind of like, that's what I was wrestling with. And so often what I would do is when I was wrestling with an idea, I would write a parable. And that often signified that I was working through that idea. You know that I that I got somewhere with that idea. So at each step of the way, you were writing parables to almost capture w the changes that were happening within you. Yeah, and the movements and the the kind of the decentering and that was going on in my own life. Will you say more about decentering? Yeah. So for me, you know, a parable uh, is a discourse, but a dis dash course. It's a discourse designed to send you off course and onto a new course. So unlike a myth, where a myth is often a story that tries to answer the question why you're here, where you're going, what it's all about, a parable kind of, in a sense, disrupts your thinking. It, everything you think of as moral or good or right, parables have this interesting and disturbing tendency to turn it on its head. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that really intrigued me because I, when I came into Christianity, there was a lot of spiritual talk seemed to be designed to explain things, to tell you why you have the right answer, how to think, etc. But when I confronted parables, I was like, oh my goodness, these do the opposite. These always seem to challenge the way I think about myself and the world and my neighbor. Uh, they're almost anti-wisdom in a sense, in the sense of like they critique the popular wisdom of the yes. day. It's almost like they set up, yeah, of course, that's how it is. Yeah. And then subvert it. Can you think of another parable that reflected another period in your growth and development? Yeah. Um, and this parable is about um, 
another pastor, actually, uh, <laughs> who is a, a very godly man. Um, but he finds he has this weird spiritual gift. I've never heard you tell stories about pastors I or know. even use the word Christianity this much. I know. It's interesting because I kind of... Well, this book that I wrote was a lot of years ago in parables, so there's a lot of that. Is that what language. the Orthodox... This book? The Orthodox Heretic is all the, the parables. And That's so this pastor, he has a spiritual gift uh, where every time he prays for somebody, they lose their faith. Uh, <laughs> now... This is a bit embarrassing as a pastor of a church because, like, you know, anything happens. As soon as someone says, could you just say a blessing over, over me? And he would do that. They'd go, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe in angels and demons. I don't believe in any of that stuff. So the pastor kept this spiritual gift to himself. But then one day he was on this train and across from him was this businessman who was very stressed. He was drinking. He was shouting at somebody on the phone. He was, uh, he was very unhealthy. And uh, when the businessman put down the phone, he orders another drink. And then he sees that this pastor's, you know, reading a Bible. He says, oh, are you a religious man? And the pastor says, yes, I am. And the businessman says, so am I. He says, I'll tell you what, it's my faith that holds me together. My, I, I'm in this difficult job. I've got difficult relationships. I've got all of these anger issues. It's, you know, you probably heard that on the phone. It's terrible, but you know what? I go to church on a Sunday morning and I go to my prayer meeting on a Wednesday night and that, that really kind of helps me get by. It helps me kind of survive the crazy world that I'm in. And so the pastor suddenly has an insight and he says, can I pray for you? And the businessman says, yes. So the pastor says a simple prayer and immediately the businessman opens his eyes and says, what a fool I've been. This religious stuff's rubbish. All this faith is nothing. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. And he stopped, you know, going to church. He stopped doing all of that stuff. But what happened is that now he was confronted with himself. He just had to look at his depressing life. He no longer had this little element of his life that helped him get things through things. And so he said, well, I probably have to change my job. Maybe I have to work through my anger issues. Maybe I should try and work on my relationships. Maybe I should actually be doing something more worthwhile with my life. And so he very gradually began to change his life. Anyway, about 10 years later, he's walking down the street. He happens to see the pastor. He runs up to him, starts to cry, embraces him and says, Pastor, thank you for helping me discover my faith. <laughs> so, yeah, so... Th th this, but how old were you when that one came out? Uh, it was a few years later. So yeah, it was around the same late, time. Late twenties. Late twenties, yeah. Um, I started to, you know, and and that th th this actually describes for me the very structure of a parable. For me, a parable is is dialectic, and by dialectic, I mean uh, a parable generally starts off with the position that the the listener takes for granted, and then it goes to a contrasting idea that the listener will find potentially offensive or wrong or disturbing. And then, which is the real trick of a parable, is the structure of the parable then seems to su suggest that the opposite position fulfills the original position. So for example, the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, the idea that um, a priest or a Levite who would see somebody beaten up on the side of the road and naked. So the idea is, of course, someone's beaten up on the side of the road. A priest goes past, doesn't touch him, right? A Levite guy walks past, crosses the road, which is completely normal. In fact, that was the, 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 what exactly you should do. That was the morality of the day to do with purity laws, etc. You couldn't you know, go over to this naked, beaten man. But then the story takes a Samaritan somebody, you know, unclean, someone who's looked down on. And the Samaritan helps this guy. So suddenly you have this contrasting view. And then the third position is, and actually that fulfills mm -hmm. the original position. Actually, that's the moral thing. That is the, the good thing to do. So this dialectic process, it's, you kind of find it in all parables. And that's why they're inherently disturbing, because they inherently turn upside down our wisdom. Yeah, and you think about so much modern education was the transmission of information, a transaction. Somebody has information, you need it. Yeah. And if you're going to become a doctor, we need you to get certain information or repair cars or whatever. So yeah. the transformation of information, the transmission isn't bad. Yeah. But that a parable 
invites you into something. Yes. And it's like it plants seeds that you that you don't get an answer, you get an invitation. Yeah. Into it. And, and, and like there's a notion, an old Greek notion of truth, uh, which means where they say truth is unconcealment. Truth is what reveals the world. And it's a beautiful way of thinking about truth because in a sense, science, physics reveals the world in a certain way. Mathematics reveals the world in a certain way. But so does poetry. It reveals the world in a certain way. And so does literature and art. And so the university is a place where all these classrooms are unconcealing the world to us in various ways. And for me, a parable is a form of revealing something that we take for granted. We just see the world as it is. We, we're not thinking critically. And then a parable just helps distort our view and disturb our view enough that it, we, something is revealed. Something is revealed about the way we live, about the world that we inhabit. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's part of the power, I think, of a parable. Can you give me some more? Yeah. Can you give me a non-Pete Rollins parable that you yeah. can think of from a ways back? Absolutely. There's, there's an old Islamic parable, or it, has, it seems to have Islamic roots. It was actually um, it was somebody who came back from the Crusades who talked about how they'd heard it in the Holy Lands. But it was about, it's a very short parable, but about a woman who carried fire and water. She carried fire in one hand with a torch and this jug of water with another hand. And when she was asked why, she said, well, the fire is to consume heaven and the water is to extinguish hell so that I do the good for no other reason than because it is the good. So in other words, not for rewards of heaven or for fear of hell, but that she would be reminded that she would do good deeds without thought of reward or punishment. Where did you come across that? came across it in a book a few years ago. I think it was a philosopher like Shizak mentioned it. And I thought it was beautiful because, again, it has the structure of uh, this kind of like disturbing, but you burn up heaven and you extinguish hell. You know, that, that should disturb the person going, to heaven and hell are good things. And then how could, how could like extinguishing those be be good but then the parable then turns around and says oh yes because in a sense we shouldn't be doing the good for the sake of heaven or for fear of hell that the, the, the true mature moral position is to do the good unconstrained good for the good yeah good for the good um will you do me will you do a parable from the orthodox from this book? From the Orthodox Heretic? Oh, yeah, let me see. Oh, okay, this is another early one. So it's another it's another one with devils and demons and <laughs> preachers and all of that. But by the way, one of the reasons I like that is because I like parables that use all of that traditional language. Sometimes it's fun because they subvert it so much. So I did this parable. Uh, I forget what it's called. Let me just... Because when you do that, when you talk about a pastor in Christianity, I'm immediately like, eh. Yes, I know, I know. I'm it's already not... checking out, honestly. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Oh, great. This is going to be just the whatever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's different. It's different. And I love that. that I love finding unpopular words. Um, this is not a plug, by the way, but I am <laughs> about to start a podcast called The Fundamentalists. And I love that word because it's so disparaged. And I'm like, I want to redeem that word. I think there's something good that we can bring out of it. So this this parable, um, I forget what it's called. Oh, uh, maybe it was called The Payoff. But I, I did this in a church once, and I asked everybody to close their eyes. I told this parable, and I said, you know, imagine that you've just died, and you've gone to heaven, and you're waiting outside this, the judgment throne, and you're then ushered in, and, you know, you've been a faithful Christian all your life, and you've, you've tried to do your best by people and, and whatever, and you walk in, and you look up on this judgment seat, and then you discover that actually on the judgment seat is the devil this demonic kind of creature. And he says, I have vanquished your God to hell. And I have vanquished your Christ to the pit of the void of nothingness. If you just bow the knee to me, you will enter eternal paradise and enjoy your existence for all eternity. But if you refuse to bow the knee, you will be thrown into hell with your God and with your Christ. What will you do? That's it. Very simple meditation. 
Um, but again, you did this like in a church service. Yeah, I've done worse, honestly. Yeah, but but yeah, I did. I, I, yeah, it was it was fun because actually, what was beautiful, I did it in a very conservative church, um, in a very conservative. What year was this? That would be... What lifetime ago was this? This would be my early 20s. (laughs) My early 20s. I ripped a Bible up in a a mega church and threw it across the room. This was ridiculous. I shouldn't have done it. It This was 20 years ago. (laughs) This was 20 years ago. This was a Pete I don't know. Yeah, this is a Pete you don't know. In fact, yes, we're talking about it. (laughs) But this is is where I was getting my teeth into religion, trying to understand religion. Because you were new to it. I was new to it. So yeah, I was trying to figure it out. Um, but the beautiful thing is I was in a community that was very conservative, evangelical, charismatic, and, and they loved this stuff. Even when, of course, sometimes they thought I was a bit crazy because I was, I thought I was a bit crazy, but, but they were, so when I ripped the Bible up, I started off and I, I started doing a boring talk about the Bible and I made sure it was purposefully really dull. And then, <laughs> so stupid, I was 18, I think, at the time. And I, I, so then I ripped it and threw it across the room. And then I, conti- I started to talk about how the text isn't sacred. The, the, the paper and the, the ink, it's in, it was when it's incarnated in us. So I did this talk. But anyway, some people went to the eldership to kind of say that I shouldn't have done this. And one of the elders, it was beautiful, he picked up a CD-ROM. So that shows you how long ago this was. <laughs> he picked up a CD-ROM of the Bible that he had on his table. And he snapped it in half. And he says, well, how did you feel when I did that? And uh, one of the people said, well, that's different. I said, well, no, I think that's the point. The point is it's not different. Like either, you know, snapping the CD-ROM of the Bible is just as bad as ripping up a book of the Bible, or they're both equally not the important thing, but it's as it's incarnated in your being. How would you define, for people who haven't heard the word incarnated, how would you describe that? Wow, I could describe it with a Buddhist parable, if, if I can, if that's okay. I actually adapted this, but I stole it from the Buddhists. Um, there's this story about this young woman who hears this inner voice that asks her to translate and distribute the sacred scriptures to the people. Because at the time, it was only in a, in a language that people didn't read, and it was only the priests who had the text, the religious leaders. Now, she had no money. So she set about raising the money to get the translators and the printing press. And uh, she sells everything she has and she begs on the street. The story goes, it takes five or six years before she's got the money together. But just then, this this plague devastates a neighboring city. She immediately takes the money she's raised and gives it to getting medicine to people who are sick, to getting nurses and doctors into the city to help people. And only after the plague has passed does she go back to her original calling to translate and distribute the scriptures. And so again, 10 years pass, and she's older now, she's not well, and she's close to her goal when a famine strikes. Again, without thinking twice, she spends all of the money bringing provisions into the city, looking after those who are destitute, those who have lost loved ones. And finally, again, She goes back after the famine to her original calling. And by the end of her life, she has made enough money and she's able to see the sacred scriptures translated and distributed among the people. But after she died, the people would start to say about her that she'd actually translated and distributed the scriptures three times in her life. And the first two were the most beautiful and wonderful of them all. That's incarnation. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I like that. That is a good one. What are your favorite parables? Okay, so so you sort of came into religion late teens. Late teens, yeah. Spirituality, spirit, depth, sacred scriptures. But then it seems like you moved through like that phase. Yeah. And the parables that you told earlier were reflective of that sort of. Already early on, it wasn't... Working for you? How would you say it? It wasn't, you were, you kept going. Well, yeah, well, one of my favorite philosophers, like, um, he's a minor philosopher, he's called Ludwig Feuerbach. Wait, 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 again, please, for my enjoyment. Ah, yes, (laughs) Uh, Ludwig uh, Feuerbach. Feuerbach. Feuerbach, yeah. What's that, what nationality is that? He's German. Okay. He was German, 19th century, very important uh, kind of 
a kind of small figure between Hegel and Marx. But that's not relevant. <laughs> um, but uh, a small figure between Hegel and Marx. Yeah, but he's he's a he's a bridge between the two. Um, but he he was brilliant because he was he wrote the this book called The Essence of Christianity and also The Essence of Religion. He read theology religiously. He wrote a book on Martin Luther, and he he now he was he was a materialist. The atheist didn't believe the stuff in that way, but he loved theology, and he said he said. You misunderstand me if you think I'm critiquing theology and Christianity. He says, no, I'm a friend of theology. He says, I think the true heartbeat of the, the scriptures, and he's thinking of the Jewish and Christian scriptures, he says, the true heartbeat is real food and water for real people. The real heartbeat of this is justice and righteousness and a love of your neighbor. And he said that the truth of theology is anthropology, which meant, he said, that that when you get to the real heart of these traditions, you discover that they are actually trying to help sensitize us to one another, to the infinite value of the other, to help us experience depth in life and to give us a sense of care and concern for the world. And so when I entered conservative, and you could call it fundamentalist Christianity that I entered, I, I, I discovered in the heart of that a heartbeat that was actually for the world and for love. And a lot of my early parables that you've heard me talk about were really attempts to uncover that, to recall that heartbeat mm -hmm. uh, amidst the rubble that sometimes kind of, or the crustaceans that, that gather around that. So that's 25 years ago. Then what happens? How do the parables change? How did your path, what began to take place? Well... You know, a lot of those early parables were, were central to where I am now. I mean, a lot of Jewish parables were very key. I really discovered these, like, the Jewish parables are very funny. They're very, um, they're, yeah, they're, they're brilliant. They're very incisive. Um, like you know, what? You, what? What was the favorite one? Well, oh, I've got a few, but there's, there's an old one that's simply two guys uh, arguing about a passage in the Torah. And they've been arguing for 20 years about what it means. And they can never find agreement. And every day they're there fighting it out. Well, God, who's got the patience of a saint, but even God is getting annoyed by this. God is like, I cannot listen to these two rabbis anymore. So he says to the angels, I'm going to go down and I'm going to tell them what I mean. Right? So he parts the clouds, goes down to this park where they're sitting, arguing the bit out and says, all right, lads, I've listened to you for 20 years. I'm going to tell you what that passage in the Torah actually means. And in a rare very rare moment of unity, the two rabbis turn to God and say, what right of you to come down here and tell us what it means? You bugger off back to heaven and let us argue about it, right? So I was like, when I heard that, I was like, what does that mean? Because in a sense, my, my Christianity was all about, that's exactly what you wanted. That what you wanted was God to tell you what the verse meant. The verse had a single meaning and and my goodness, you, you would pray all night to get God's view on it. But then as I looked at this parable, I was like, oh, yes. Within that tradition, it's more like going to an art gallery and looking at your favorite piece of art. The, it's the, the, the art doesn't lack meaning. It has so much meaning that you can't pin it down. So much meaning that you have to look at your favorite piece of art again and again and again. And, and every time you look at it, you get something else out of it. And so if the artist even comes along and says, oh, I can tell you what this, what this piece of art means, you go, you clear off. The idea that you created something that has a singular meaning, no, 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 it's, about, it's not about the correct interpretation. It's about, do I love the piece of art? Am I transformed by the piece of art? Does this piece of art speak to me in ways that, 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 that transform and revolutionize me? So yeah, that's a big that's a big thing in Jewish so in some Jewish absolutely oh yeah. absolutely yeah the arguing is the, yeah yeah I mean that that's it. it's almost like oh one more very quickly sorry of the Jewish ones sorry I, no way oh, Tell, yeah. give me all of them all yeah. the ones you got yeah, I mean some some people have heard this one before it's a classic but it's this this young guy who's arrogant he's in his twenties and he goes to this old rabbi who's in his seventies and he says Rabbi Rabbi teach me the wisdom of God the wisdom of the Hebrew people. The rabbi laughs. He's like, you're in your 20s. What do you know? You still, you know, go away, go away. You do, come back to me in 20 years. 
But the young guy goes, listen, no, no, no. He says, I know Aristotelian logic. I know symbolic logic. I'm ready for the logic of God. So the rabbi says, well, I'll ask you a question to test you. He says, uh, okay, two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom one is soot in their face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? Well, the young guy says, that's obvious, the guy with the soot in his face. And the rabbi says, no, not at all. He says, the guy without the soot in his face. Why? Well, because he sees the other person has soot in his face. Therefore, he thinks, I must have soot on my face. So he washes his face. Well, the young guy goes, oh, oh yeah, of course, of course. Listen, try me again, try me again. And the rabbi says, okay. He says, I'll ask you a different question. <laughs> he says, two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom, one has soot in their face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? And the guy goes, oh, the guy without the soot in his face, because he sees his friend, and the rabbi stops him and says, stop, stop trying to be smart. Of course not. The guy with the soot in his face, you think he can't taste it in his mouth, he can't feel it in his eyes? Are you dumb? And the guy's confused. He says, try me one more time. And the rabbi says, okay, this time I will ask you a different question. He says... <laughs> Two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom, one has soot in their face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? And the guy goes, was it my first answer for different reasons? And the rabbi says, no. He says, they both wash their face. How could you not come down a chimney and not think you got soot on your face? Now clear off and come back to me in 20 years, right? So <laughs> it's, I love this because, again, the idea, I think, is that this young guy is thinking that religion is the answer. I'm ready for the, the religious answer. And the rabbi said, no, 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 no. It's a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. This is a conversation that's been going on before you were born and will be going on after you're dead. Yeah. To enter in is to enter into yeah, the life dynamism. Life is the answer. Exactly. The dynamism, the antagonism, the movement is the answer. That's a good one. Do you have any yeah. other... Do you have any other I got ones? hundreds of them. <laughs> no, another, keep going. No, another Jewish one. Another Jewish one. Let me see. Okay. Um, I love them. Oh, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, I think this is, no, this is a Buddhist one. And I'll say everyone's heard this one before, but there's a good Christian version. I'll tell you the Buddhist one and then the Christian one. Um, it's about this, this priest uh, who's uh, praying in this temple and there's a cat and the cat's always running around, like disturbing everybody. So he always ties the cat to a, the tree during the prayers and meditation. And eventually the old guy dies. And so the disciples continue to tie the cat to the tree during meditation. Eventually the cat dies. And so the disciples go down into the marketplace and they get another cat to tie to the tree during meditations. And now after seven generations of cat, eventually the tree falls down. And so they plant a new tree to tie the seventh generation of cat to. And then finally the scholars turn up and they write learned treaties about the theological significance of tying cats to trees during meditation. <laughs> and the Christian version is a, a mega church that always told people to turn off their mobile phones before the service. But then after a year or two, they discovered some people didn't have mobile phones, some of the older people in the congregation. So they started to hand out mobile phones at the beginning so that they could turn them off <laughs> during the service. <laughs> there's, a, there's a nice little parable. <laughs> okay. Here's a funny thing, by the way. One, one thing is that, you know what I said about the artwork, that mm -hmm. the idea is that, that the artwork has more meaning than you can articulate. I discovered this with, this with parables is that parables can be interpreted in multiple ways. And in my first book on parables, I did try to give a kind of interpretation of each of the parables. But actually, good parables can be interpreted in other ways. And I discovered people, there was this kid who was like 12 years old, who told me his interpretation of one of my parables that was much better than the interpretation I had when I was writing it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the reason why I uh, wrote that. <laughs> so um, it's, that's what's fun about all of these parables is they uh, continue to create meaning. Yes. They, they, they um, what's the word? They excrete meaning. They, they, it comes out of the pores of, of parables. That's a good phrase. They excrete meaning. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about, now let's fast forward 20 years. Yeah. What would be a parable you've created recently that would be reflective of where you're at now? Can you, like, trace the parable? The parables? Yeah, although a weird thing happened to me, to be honest, right? See, when I was writing The Orthodox Heretic, I... Uh, I wrote 33 parables and I was literally writing them every day. 
And as soon as I got to the last one, I closed the book and then didn't think of a new parable for about 10 years. It was so strange. I think oh, I really? just went, I kind of did that. Yes. But, but, but then more recently, some of them have been coming back to me. But here's the annoying thing. I haven't been writing them down. So I know I came up with one last week and I didn't write it down. And hopefully in the course of this interview, it might pop So back. you'll come up with a whole parable now. Is it spurred by something you've noticed or seen in yourself? What catalyzes it or what sparks it? Yeah, it's the, it's the dialectic move that sparks it. It's whenever I see a way to uh, critique common sense wisdom, common sense wisdom I have or my friends have, um, in a way that is that reveals a yeah. truth, that unconceals the world. And that's happening all the time. But here, dialectics, the parables are easy to write. This is a secret. If people didn't, in one sense, you don't have to be a great writer. You don't have to develop characters. You don't have to like describe things. They are very to the point. They're very punchy. The only thing you need, I think, to, to write parables is to understand this dialectic kind of move. But it's not popular in America or in the UK, uh, this type of thinking. Most people think uh, in cause and effect. So you move from one position and you build and then you build and you build. And that's a great way of learning, it's a scientific way of learning. But dialectics bounces you from one position to the opposite, and then and then bounces to a third position, which kind of encapsulates both. And it's much more uh, dynamic type of thinking. But funnily enough, in America in the 1950s, uh, the CIA said that one of the ways you can tell someone's a communist is if they use the word dialectic. <laughs> so it became a very unpopular <laughs> way of, uh, you know, a word and phrase. So, but that type of thinking I find within religions, I, I often find that, that you start with, so can I take an example of providence, for example, right? So there's this religious idea that, you know, God or the universe will, you know, look after you if you maybe are, are faithful, will crush your enemies, will heal you from sickness, will look after your kids. So there's a notion of providence. But then one of the problems with that isn't that it's true or false. It's just that it doesn't work. So if you're anxious, uh, don't, no matter how good your external world is, your internal world's in chaos. So if you're an insomniac, for example, no matter how black the room is and no matter how quiet it is, you'll always hear a creak or you'll hear the hum of the refrigerator. Your anxiety, no matter how perfect your external circumstances are, finds something to latch onto. Even if you had perfect quiet, you'd hear the blood in your ear, right? So people create more and more rituals. They have to listen to certain podcasts. They have to shower a certain amount. They have to do this, that, to sleep. So then you kind of go, okay, there's a problem with providence in that sense. So you move to the opposite and you say, well, what if there is no notion of like this calmness and everything's going to be okay? But then you move to another position and go, well, hold on a second. The third position is, what if everything's not okay and you're okay with that? Like, what if that's true providence? The, the idea that you don't have to have a perfectly quiet room or a perfectly black room. You can actually sleep with a bit of noise and a little bit of light. And actually, you can even enjoy those things. So what happens, that's a dialectic move. You, you start maybe with a religious notion, and then you critique it. And then you go to this third position, and you go, oh, the third position might actually get to what the first position always meant which you see in the Bible, which is, you know, through all the adversity and difficulties, you can, you can have a sense of peace in all of the craziness. It doesn't mean you can, you're happy necessarily, but there's a way of, of having peace in the storm of life. And maybe that's, that's really the type of life that, that, is, that is a healthy life to lead. So that's a, that's a type of dialectic thinking, you know. Ah, that's interesting. I, I, this rhythm, that's not like the three beats. Yeah. To things I realize how many of my sermons or how many of episodes in the Robcast of like there's light which is oblivious everything's fine shiny happy then there's heavy which is it's all terrible yeah it's overwhelming you don't realize how complex it is do you see how much pain there is and there's a lightness on the other side of heaviness which doesn't and here's the trick of dialectics which is really exciting we're talking is that on the other side of it doesn't doesn't get rid of Correct. The, the complexity, it the, doubt, the ambiguity, includes. and it transcends and includes. So it's, it's this beautiful thing where 
and, and this is the whole thing of starting where you're at. So your sermons, you start, like there's a wee, wee story of a, a guy trying to find Tipperary in Ireland. And he, he parks and he asks this farmer, this guy Seamus, he says, here, how do I get to Tipperary? And Seamus says, oh, he is says... Tipperary a real place? It is. Oh, real. Tipperary. Tipperary. There's a, there's a joke about it's a long way to Tipperary, but you have to set up for five minutes this fake animal called a rary that needs to be tipped over a cliff. I'm not going to tell you the joke, <laughs> but it's a, but this guy Seamus, he says, you're, you're trying to get to Tipperary? He says, I wouldn't start here, right? Now, the purpose of that little story is, that's stupid, of course, that's you it. have to start here. That's the extent here. of the story? That's the story, yeah, I wouldn't start here. You know, if you, you're trying to find Tipperary, I wouldn't start here. But you've got to start <laughs> where people are at. Is that even a parable? Would you call that a parable? I, I, don't, I don't know what I'd call it, but I'd call that truth. <laughs> you know, that, that, a wee story. A wee story, okay. A wee story. And it's a story that says, in a, you start, the first beat is where people are at. What's the wisdom and the idea and the place that people are at? Then the second beat is a contrast to that, throwing them into a place. So the first beat is like religion is about comfort. It's about knowledge. It's about certainty. It's about having the answers. And then the contrast is, but no, life is full of uncertainty, complexity, doubt, and unknowing. And then the third beat is, what if in the midst of doubt, complexity, and unknowing, that's where we find a true life and richness and, and, and comfort. So there's comfort in those things. That's the transcend and include, which you love that stuff because you're all into spiral dynamics. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. But I realized how much the dialectic that you're talking about, how often in life or in my work I'm looking for Anytime I see two sides, yeah, I'm instinctively like, Dad, there's a third space here yes. somewhere. And there's a third, third space beyond these that is bigger and wider and can contain all of this. It just keeps going. Exactly. And that's the whole thing of the dialectic. There's no stopping. That's why parables can continue to be written because this spiral continues and deepens. And actually, when you asked me, where are my parables now? Actually, the funny thing is I moved from parables, mostly from parables, into comedy. I started to get really interested in comedians yep. because comedians use this three-beat structure. They say something that we take for granted, then they, then they kind of like throw you into some, like something you never thought before or never saw before. And then the humor is in, is in that kind of like confusion and decentering and destabilizing. So, for example, a comedian might joke about how they went to a doctor's and they had to strip down and this really embarrassing procedure. You go, right, okay, some of us have been there, obviously myself excluded. <laughs> you know, right, so you've got that. Then you've got the, they're talking about it, so you're now un, you're uncomfortable, you're in that uncomfortable space. But then they laugh about it and they joke about it and suddenly you're like, I shouldn't be embarrassed about this. This is fine. This is actually something that's part of being human. And actually, instead of hiding it, I should celebrate it. So what happens is, initially you think, my comfort comes from not looking at that stuff. I'm going to bury that horrible experience, and then I'll feel better. The comedian then brings it up, and you're like, oh, I don't want to be there. I don't want to look at that. And then, and then, the, and then the actual joke itself it robs that feeling of its sting. It's like, actually, you know what? I'm comfortable with my humanity. I'm comfortable with that crazy stuff. I don't have to hide from it. So that's that's a similar structure to a parable. Ah, very interesting. Okay, now one final thing. I want to talk about the absurd in parables. Oh, yeah. So Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son, it begins with a man has two sons. Men had two sons in those days. The younger son said to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. And generally, inheritance would be divided when the father died. So that was essentially a way of first century of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Mm -hmm. You're, all I care about is your money. I don't care about you. So that, the crowd would have just been like, no, this doesn't happen. Yep. It's so shocking and over the top. Or mm -hmm. um, there's a parable Jesus tells about a lost sheep. But what I love is he's speaking to religious leaders, specifically Pharisees who had very strict clean, unclean rules, and like you would never touch a sheep because sheep were unclean. So he says, if one of you has a sheep and it wanders off, which is yeah. completely, yeah. like that's a joke in itself. So yes, when Jesus says to a group it. of very religious people who would never get anywhere near sheep, now imagine if one of you, you know, one of you has a sheep and it, want, it has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. Yeah. That alone is completely absurd 
and over the top and ridiculous. Or the owner of the vineyard who people work different amount of hours gives them all the same. Or the owner who entrusts all his wealth to his servants and goes away. Yep. They generally begin with something completely absurd. That's it. So there's something... there's this great line that's been bouncing around in my heart for months now. Blessed are those who are in on the joke. <laughs> like yeah. if you read through Jesus' parables, they all begin with some absurdity. Yeah. Like the whole thing is ridiculous. You get that, right? Because yeah. if you get that, you're halfway there. Yeah. Which is so interesting to me. Like we're all going to die. You could die tomorrow. Cancer. We could have another drought in California. We could have like everything from the tragic, heartbreaking loss of somebody you love to natural disasters to stock markets that are all over the place. Yeah, like the whole thing is barely hanging on. Yes, it's hanging by a thread. We yep. could all go over the cliff tomorrow. Yep, and yet there's friends and love and music and wine and food and surfing and yeah, absolutely. Actually, the book that I'm writing at the moment is a book on Christianity and the absurd. And it's, a, it's arguing that Christianity is absurdist. It's, the, it's proto-punk and it's proto-avant-garde. It's proto-surrealist. <laughs> um, and that proto-punk, proto-avant-garde, proto-surrealist. Is that what yeah, you said? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a precursor <laughs> to the Dadaists and the punks. And because, because in a sense, and it, it's kind of like an, we think of religion as a, a meaning structure. The idea of Christianity, it gives you meaning. Right. But actually, when you read these texts... Uh, they crack open meaning. It's exactly what you said. Like there's an absurdist element to parables. They set up a position and then they blew it wide open. They right. blew your whole world of meaning apart. And Soren Kierkegaard really understood this deeply. In fact, Kierkegaard said, he said, listen, he says, uh, he says, I'm a religious man, right? He says, you can say, you know, you can, you, you know, you can slag that off if you want. He says, you can say anything. I don't mind, but I'm a religious man. He says, the only two things I don't ever want to hear from you about Jesus. The only two things that will offend me more than anything else are that you tell me he's wise or he's good. Those are the most terrible things you could say, right? <laughs> you know? And you, at first you go like, well, why would Kierkegaard say that? Because those are the two things, even if pe- whatever people think about God or anything like that, they often go, but Jesus was a moral, if he existed, was a moral and a good, per- a good person, a wise person. But Kierkegaard goes, no, no. From our standpoint, uh, Jesus was immoral and mental. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is like a, a turn on, you know, the liar, lunatic, lord things. Yes. It's like Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. Whereas Kierkegaard says, no, he was a liar and a lunatic. And that's why he's lord, right? Because he's saying that, that everything we take about who's in and who's out uh, is blown apart, who's yes. right and who's wrong, yes. what's clean, what's unclean, what's pure, what's impure. Uh, everything about... Uh, who's my enemy, who's not? Yes, exactly. And, and wisdom is always about, you know, yes, who, who I can associate with and who I can't. And, and the way of the world, it's just the way it is that we have to accept. Jesus comes in, blows all of that up. So, so Kierkegaard says, like, come on, whenever you encounter this figure... The wonder church is boring because you try and make Jesus into this moral good character. Jesus is this crazy lunatic, like blowing everything up. And and then Kierkegaard says, and that's what's so beautiful about it. Blessed are those who are in on the joke, who are in on the insurrection, who are in on the the explosion uh, in the playground of theology that this is. I just have to enjoy that for a second. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, my word. We've been talking for a while. Oh, wow. Let's talk about parables of yours can be accessed through... Oh, yes. Where can people find Pete Rollins' parables? Yeah, well, actually, for the Holy Shift Tour, I wanted to have an Oprah Winfrey moment where (laughs) not that I give everyone a free car, but where I give everyone a free book. So um, what I did is I've set up that if people go onto my website, uh, they can download my Orthodox Heretic, which is me reading 33 of these parables uh, with music from my friend Dub uh, in Belfast, so this kind of ambient electronic music. So yeah, if you just go onto my website and sign up, uh, you'll get a free copy of the Orthodox Heretic. Nice. And then uh, you're doing Atheism for Lent? so excited it's one of the one of the things that i love most about the year is my atheism for lent Uh, and explain what that is yeah well so 
you know, atheism is seen as the opposite of theology, like like they're enemies, and theism and atheism are, are two sides of the school playground, and never do they meet except to fight. But the truth is, oh, they've had a passionate love affair, that their, atheism and theism interact and interweave in wonderful ways, and that when atheism is divorced from theology, it becomes an adolescent positivistic cry against superstition, and when theology is divorced from atheism, it becomes this basement academic discipline with as much credibility as astrology or phrenology. But when they meet, they enrich and deepen each other. So atheism for Lent is every day of Lent, people get reflections, art, music, uh, writings that bring people into this experience, this dance between theism and atheism. We look at, say, for example, the mystics, who said every time you, you say something of God, you have to be an atheist towards it because every, every speech you make about God is less than God. We look at the materialist critiques of theology. We look at the existential theologians and we, we see how these dance together and that atheism has a theological heritage. Uh, and by the end of that experience, um, I, I really hope that people have a deeper and richer understanding of this word God that actually it's, it's, you know, I talked at the beginning of this about unconcealing, that truth is a, is a form of something being revealed. I, I hope that this word reveals more than it did at the beginning of the course. And then once a week I give a seminar that kind of explores and contextualizes the, the material. Nice. Where do people sign up? Go to my website and they'll find all the details they need. Pete Rollins? Dot com, yeah, PeterRollins.com. And then uh, you mentioned in passing a podcast. Yes, I know. I'm very excited about this. You know, I'm, I, I can see you're scared. I can see you know. No, that I'm you're, smiling. No, your reign is over. The, <laughs> the Rob cast is done. You're you going know, down. You're going down, sir. <laughs> this is this is a battle to the death. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm super excited. I um, so I, I my housemate is a comedian called Elliot Morgan, a YouTube, a, a veritable YouTube legend. Yeah, he is a total YouTube legend. Uh, anybody under my age will have heard of him. I'd never heard of him because I'm too old. But um, he is a brilliant uh, YouTube host and comedian and a great friend of mine. And we decided. Let's let's get into this podcast thing before it becomes big. <laughs> before everyone has one. I think we were a little bit late out of the out of the the game, but the ideas were called the fundamentalists. And it's about a comedian with a love for philosophy and a philosopher with a love of comedy sitting around late at night, having a drink, talking about the art of living well. And if you don't listen to us, you'll go to hell. So. <laughs> Uh, and we launched this Sunday, which is very scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, which will, uh, this Sunday will be the day after this episode comes out. Yeah. So. We just released a lovely little t uh, trailer saying it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And uh, oh. yeah, that, that good old evangelical phrase. <laughs> Seriously, Pete. Yeah. I'm so glad we're friends. This man is such a ride. I'm so glad we're just getting going on you. our tour. I know. I love all of this um, that you bring about the parables. Because it feels like we're learning in ways that ancient ways that are being rediscovered. Yeah, I think we're going to see more and more parables, people writing their own parables. Yeah, because they they do something to us. Yeah, they're 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 funny, they're disturbing, and they're transformative. They're they're discourses yeah. that send us on new courses. Oh, so well said. Grace and peace, everyone. <laughs>